So, um, you know, Mark Twain once read uh, his own obituary uh, in the newspaper, and, and he, he said, uh, the reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated <laughs> in this. And I think the reports of the demise of Aristotelianism uh, are also greatly exaggerated. So one of, the, one of the projects I've been working on, as Father alluded to the last 10 years or so, is to argue that the quantum revolution is actually a huge vindication of Aristotle. Um, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg actually was one who recognized this in physics and philosophy. He said, uh, what uh, quantum mechanics has done is actually rediscovered potentia, the Aristotelian notion of potentiality. And there are, there are many different aspects of this vindication, and I'm only going to be able to talk about one today because of the, uh, <coughs> the shortage of time. So I'm going to talk about the existence of large-scale substances, things that are not just microscopic, but uh, uh, like human size, for instance, <laughs> uh, substances as real parts of the world. So, um, and so in particular, I'm going to focus on inorganic or non-living substances in this, this particular talk, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. So let's see. Here's the uh, overview. Um, I'm going to explain why we need inorganic substances in the Aristotelian framework, uh, why quantum particles, and also atoms and molecules, I think, cannot be substances. Uh, briefly discuss the philosophical role of substantial form and how that plays a role in, in modern science, and then, and then get to the heart of it, uh, chemical substances and quantum mechanics, and make my sort of case for it the existence of large-scale uh, substances. So, you know, the project here is to uh, look at the Aristotelian framework and to see to what extent we can apply it to uh, modern understanding of nature, modern science. And so as you look at that Aristotelian framework, um, you can think of this, I think of it as three or four layers, right? There's a sort of primary constituent, the parts of the framework that you just couldn't change without destroying the whole thing. There are secondary ones where you could change them, but it would require some significant revision of the whole picture. And then there are tertiary ones where, you know, this is just Aristotle applying his framework to the science of his day, easy to switch out uh, what he says and, and what the actual case. And then there's the quaternary ones. These are the cases where Aristotle had to accommodate his framework to what he thought was the existing facts about the nature, but actually he was wrong and his framework was better than he thought, right? So a spontaneous generation is an example of this, right? I mean, he thought it was a reality, so he had to fit in his framework somewhere, and he brought the sun in and whatnot. But when it turned out that that didn't happen, that's actually better for his framework. His framework works better in light of the new knowledge. And I think in many cases, um, the quantum revolution actually and I won't be able to get into the details of this, uh, is often involves a kind of quaternary change. That is, that, that is, the Aristotelian framework fits better to what we know from quantum mechanics than it fits with what with the nature that Aristotle knew in the 5th century BC. So things are actually getting better uh, rather than worse as science progresses for Aristotelians. Okay, so why do we need inorganic substances? We'll have to explain what a substance is, first of all, of course. And, I apologize, it's sort of elementary for, for folks in the, in the room, but helpful maybe to repeat it anyway. I'm going to explain why I don't like to talk about emergence, so I'm going to try and ban that word from our discussion entirely. Uh, <laughs> explain why. And then what are the world's substances? Um, that, of course, is a crucial question. So what is it to be a substance, or usia, in the Greek sense here? Uh, it's to exist in the most central focal sense of the word that creatures are capable of. So it's the things that really and truly exist, right, in the, in the full sense. Uh, they constitute the unique and fundamental level of created reality. Right? Everything else depends on them. Uh, once you have them and their properties in place, you've got pretty much everything, right? Uh, they have per se unity, and this is really crucial, right? They're not aggregates or heaps, right? So at, at a given moment in time, there's something that truly unifies them into one thing, and they have diachronic unity as well. That is, they persist through time in a way that isn't just cobbling together a bunch of events in a random way or an arbitrary way, like, uh, you know, a restaurant, for example, doesn't have per se unity in any of these senses. Uh, whether a new, whether a restaurant has moved across the street, is it the same restaurant or not, who cares, right? A substance has per se unity. Uh, and it's the principal ground, therefore, in nature of change and persistence. So it's the thing that bears the causal powers that makes things happen. It's the things that have the real potentialities to be acted upon. So they're, they're from a, any scientific point of view, these are really the fundamental things. Now why, are emergent, why is emergence not a real thing? Um, well, I think emergent entities are fundamental entities that contain other fundamental entities as material parts. This is the Van Inwagen, O'Connor kind of picture. That is, it's substances with other substances as parts. Uh, that's, that's what I think they mean by emergence. And the problem for this, again, real briefly, is it seems then that you've got overdetermination of location, right? So if I'm a substance and my molecules are also substances, then why am I located here? Well, partly because I'm here and also because my molecules are here. Well, and those are both fundamental facts. 
So that's sort of weird, right? It's like it's, it's my location is overdetermined in two, two completely independent ways. And similarly, if we try to account for the causal powers of the whole, we again either get complete overdetermination, where I do things because of my causal powers, and my molecules do the same things because of their causal powers, and that seems like causal redundancy, or we have to kind of cobble together some kind of causal powers that I have that enable me to act upon my molecules, but then that's just dualism, that's not hylomorphism, that's some kind of soul-like thing that's interacting with substances. So we should reject this kind of picture. Uh, the Aristotelian answer is the material parts of a substance are wholly dependent on that substance. They have only potential or virtual existence or integral, or they're integral parts, so I'll explain that in a minute. So anyway, here's a diagram that I just put together really based on some of the discussions over the last couple of days. Um, we can think of parts as being divided into four kinds. Um, actual parts versus potential, or, or a particular kind of potential parts that we're going to call virtual parts. Uh, substantial parts, these are parts that would be substances on their, in their own right um, if they existed, or, or are substances in their own right if they do exist, right? And then the integral parts, these are the parts that, um, even if they actually exist, uh, are wholly dependent on the substances to which they belong. Okay. So um, I'm going to argue, um, let's see if I can find the right order here. Make sure I've got, uh, yeah, so, um, well, again, for reasons of time, I don't go into great detail, but the vir a virtual part is something that's only potential, but it's a special kind of potential part. It's a potential part that is such that the existence of that potential part is explanatory of some of the causal powers of the whole substance, the whole organism. So in particular, I'm gonna argue that um, I've got um, potential of virtual parts that are inorganic. Um, and uh, so they're really potentially there, but they do contribute to explaining why I'm able to do the things I'm doing. So I've got sort of calcium as one of my potential parts. And that explains why my skeleton is able to have the powers that it does. Right? So that's, why, that's what makes it not merely potential, but virtual. It's contributing something of an explanatory nature. Now, as I just argued, if emergence is wrong, then this category is empty. Right? That is, substances don't have substantial parts that are actual, because that would, that would lead to this over-determination that I was just talking about. Um, how about actual? Um, well, how about substantial parts that are merely virtual? This would be something like the um, chemical bulk substances, to use uh, the term that Karen introduced, which I, which I like, I'm going to borrow, uh, substances uh, as parts of, of an organism, let's say. Or the elemental bulk substances. Right? So, um, so there's a kind of bulky electron substance, let's say, a substance made entirely of electrons, which is a virtual part of me. There's also a kind of bulky oxygen substance, right, which is also a virtual part of me. And both of those play some kind of explanatory role in a complicated sort of way in explaining my, my causal powers. Uh, but they're only there on the Aristotelian picture in a virtual or potential sense. They're not there actually as parts of me. Now the other kind of uh, part that's relevant here are integral parts. So integral parts are things that are dependent on the substance and they cannot exist except as part of Y, roughly. Um, that's not quite right, but it's maybe good enough as a first approximation. The point is that the very existence of the integral part is dependent in some way on the nature and existence of the whole. Right? So classic examples of this would be things like a heart or a hand as parts of an organism. Right? So something can't be a heart except as the heart of some organism. Its very being as a heart depends upon its relationship to some organism or other. Likewise, the hand. Right? Um, now, another example, actually, I think, is, uh, and this also kind of sort of alluded to this, be something like the surface of a liquid. That's an integral part of the, of the liquid in the sense that you can't have a surface without a liquid, right? It's like you can't have a smile without the cat, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a part, it's actual in this case, but it's integral. It's not, it's not something that uh, can stand on its own as a substance in any fashion or form. Now this is another category which I don't think anyone else has discussed. Right? It's implicitly there in Aristotle, but it's going to be quite important virtual integral parts. 
It is parts that are, would be integral parts if they were actual, but are there only potentially. And I'm going to argue that those, that's going to play a really important uh, role in, in the story. All right, now I'm going to skip over metaphysical parts, except just to say I'm not talking about those. So forms and matter, form and matter, those are a special kind of part which we won't talk too much about except later. So what are the world's substances? Um, well, for Aristotelians, organisms are substances, right? They're sort of paradigms of substances. And I won't have time to go into why that is, right? But basically it's because animals have things like perception and uh, sensation and action, so that plants of a certain kind. So, and of course, they're, they're compound entities, right? They have parts. They're not like electrons or something, right? So we've got to try and figure out how this works. Now, the tiling constraint it's implicit in what I, what I argued for earlier. So what I mean by tiling constraint is that no two substances overlap. They can't have parts in common. And every material thing is contained in the sum of all the substances. That is, if you take all the substances of the world together, that's everything in the natural world. Right? There's nothing left over that isn't. Is it a substance or part of a substance or part of some substances or something like that, right? So they sort of exhaust the world. So the idea is, it's like a, this is you can cast, tessellate a plane, right? Uh, the tiles represent substances and the whole, the whole thing represents reality, right? Um, and as I said, um, there, there, there would be really difficult problems that arise if we think of two substances overlapping or one substance being contained as a part of the other. You get these over-determination problems, right? So I'm going to exclude that. So the tiling constraint, again, is what rules out uh, that category. There are no actual substantial parts, because that would be one substance inside another. That's not, that's not going to be allowed, okay? Um, so quantum particles um, cannot be substances. So electrons, photons, quarks, um, photons, not substances, okay? Uh, nor, I think, are individual atoms or molecules, by, by Aristotelian standards. They're not, they're not substances. Uh, why not? Well, many reasons. I'll just mention three here real briefly. One is a lack of individuality, right, as reflected in uh, quantum statistics. So individual quantum particles don't have identities in the same way that you and I do, right? They are treated as, as sort of interchangeable in a very deep kind of way. Uh, so for instance, in classical Maxwell-Boltzmann statistics, if you had two, two electrons and each one could be either up or down, there'd be four cases, right? A up, A, B up, both up, both down, A down, B up, A up, B down, right? Four different cases, because these two would be distinct, right? Because A and B have distinct identities. So what's it to do? Uh, oh, use the pointer, sorry. No, you switch this. Oh, all right, switch the screens, okay. Um, right, um, anyway, um, in both Einstein's, uh, Einstein's statistics, you get just three cases, both up, both down, one up, one down. So these two just sort of collapse together into a single case, right? And just as in, in these statistics, you treat all four cases equally, in both Einstein, you treat all three of these equally. So the, the, the distinctness of A and B just disappears under Bose-Einstein. And something very similar happens under Fermi-Dirac, uh, I won't go into the details. But in any case, in both cases, you have a loss of individual identity. And that, I think, rules them out as substances. Substances have to have individual identities that persist through time. Quantum particles don't have that, and so they don't, they don't count. And also, uh, you know, anything that, that you treat at a quantum mechanical level, including atoms in, in small molecules, same thing. Uh, the number of particles is frame-dependent in quantum field theory. So it's a little bit complicated, but once you reduce, introduce a relativity, certain properties are relative to your frame of reference. So things like length and time duration depends upon the speed at which you're moving. In quantum field theory, the actual number of particles is frame dependent. So you can have a system that has seven electrons if I'm standing still relative to it, and five electrons if I'm moving past it at a certain velocity, right? So the very number of, of particles isn't fixed intrinsically according to quantum field theory. And that, to me, suggests, again, they can't be substances, because you can't say that your reality has to contain n substances at all times. There can't be any kind of fuzziness about that. Uh, and finally, particles lack finite boundaries and definite trajectories. And there's been some interesting theorems here by people like Clifton and, and uh, Halverson that show that you cannot, you cannot um, confine a particle to any finite region. So every quantum particle is at least 
to some extent, located everywhere in the cosmos. They have no, no kind of definite location or, or trajectory. And there are a number of other reasons, but for that will be enough for the day, I hope. <laughs> uh, okay, part three, the philosophical role of substantial form. Um, I'm going to argue that Aristotle's forms are modeled on Plato's, and it actually came up in the discussion recently, and I'm, I'm affirming that. Um, three crucial questions about form, and then why forms are not structures, which is a common idea out there these days. I'm going to try and smash it in a minute or two, so we'll see how that works. Uh, so Plato's theory of forms, just in case you forget roughly uh, how it works, uh, you've got the particular things in the world, uh, particular acts of justice or just institutions, and then there's a form of justice that lives up in some kind of Platonic heaven that provides the unity of the sameness to the various uh, individual members. So what Aristotle does is he immunitizes the forms. He takes the forms from that Platonic heaven and sort of locates them into individual things. So forms are still involved in explaining similarity, right? So what makes all the electrons similar is the fact that they have electron form. That form is what unifies the things. Um, and he doesn't have to locate the forms in some otherworldly domain. And forms are not external to the substances. So each electron has its own electron form that makes it an electron. Right? And it's right there, so to speak. It's not off in some weird platonic heaven. Um, okay, there's a lot more to explain here, which again, I don't have time to, to go into. But his, his, his forms can also nicely explain the porphyrian tree that we see both in biology and also in physics, right? So organisms are, are grouped into plants and animals, and vertebrates and invertebrates, and so on, that kind of genus species structure. Aristotle can explain that in terms of actuality and potentiality. Uh, and likewise, in, in physical world, right? Particles are leptons or baryons and so on. And again, that's the kind of structure that Aristotle's picture is very well, very apt to, to, to be useful in explaining. So it, it helps provide a, a foundation for the actual scientific practice that we see around us. All right, three crucial questions about uh, forms. First of all, are they universal or particular? That is, the two electrons have numerically the same form, or are there numerically distinct forms? Right? Big controversy about what Aristotle actually thought. I think it's pretty clear that Aquinas thought they're particular, and I think he's right. So forms are particular. Each particular thing has its own individual form. Right? Uh, are they simple or complex? That is, are forms sort of put together by other little like microforms or something to build a big form, or are they all simple? I'm going to argue they're all simple. That is, they, forms are never composite because <clears throat> forms are supposed to be the ground of the unity of the substance. They sort of explain why the substance is one, so the form itself had better be simple. At least it helps. Uh, and are forms prior to the substances, or are they posterior? So, in other words, does the existence of the form explain the existence and nature of the substance, or does the substance explain its form? Or are they really the very same thing, just thought of in different ways? And you'll find people in the contemporary Aristotelian hylomorphic world that take all three of these positions. The right one is A, right? <laughs> that is, the forms explain the substance. Again, I won't have time to explain exactly why that's the right answer, but I'll just uh, tell you that. Uh, that is, they're prior. So from Aristotle's point of view, forms, forms are prior to substances. They're simple, and they're particular. So that's where lo that lo locates Aristotle here. Here are some of the... Uh, other contemporary positions, all wrong in various ways, right? Um, which again, I'll be able to explain. But basically, why I say that forms are not structures is that I think that structures are really things that are not prior to the substance, right? So in other words, if you think, oh, sure, water has form, it's no problem, because after all, every water molecule is structured in a certain way, and that, that arrangement of the atoms, that just is the form. Well, but, but, but if, if, if what makes a water molecule a water molecule is the fact that the atoms are arranged in a certain way, then it seems that the, that the structure is something that is uh, consequent to the water molecule, right? You've got the water molecule, it has, it has a certain internal arrangement. That either just is the water molecule or it's something, that we, something that's consequent to it. It doesn't really explain why the water molecule is arranged the way it is, right? And that's what form is supposed to do. So form, if I'm right, if it's there, is the thing that's actually responsible for the structure. Something that puts the molecule together in a certain way. It isn't just the fact that the art molecule is arranged in a certain way. Right? That, that would be either B or C, and that would get you down into this, this sort of thing. Okay? Uh, again, I'm going to just jump over that real quickly. Uh, so what are the functions of form and the, the true approach to things? Right? Uh, it solves the problem of, of the one over the many. 
That is, it explains why similar things are similar and why dissimilar things are dissimilar. It does that sort of job. Uh, I can't explain why, but it does. <laughs> it grounds the unity at a given time of composite things, but makes it a one, one thing rather than many. And it grounds the persistence of changeable substances through time. So it gives it that enduring identity through time. All three of those are explained by the, by the form that the substance has. So it's not just some optional thing. It's actually doing real, deep metaphysical work for us. It's something that uh, Aristotelians need to take seriously. OK, finally, we get to the uh, real payoff, right? Point where we start to apply this to contemporary science. Uh, chemical substances and quantum mechanics. Again, okay, didn't do that. Uh, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to make a, a, a couple, uh, first of all, make some clarifying distinctions, and then get into the heavy-duty stuff here, uh, BCD. Talk about algebraic quantum theory versus pioneer early quantum theory. Uh, mention, explain the continuum limit, why I think that's important. I'm going to make some, some real radical claims there, so pay attention, because you're going to want to jump on me for sure. And then talk about the persistence of, of chemical form. Okay, so types and tokens, um, important distinction. Charles Peirce, I think, is the one who introduces it into philosophy. So if I, if I write on the, on the screen, it, 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 uh, we've got three word tokens and one word type, right? So hopefully that's, that's relatively clear. So that's the type, type token distinction. Uh, tokens are individual in particular. Uh, types can, in some sense, contain multiple tokens. And they're sort of universal, right? They're sort of universals on the cheap, the way I think about it, right? So if you're, not a, if, you're a, if you're a nominalist and you want something like a universal, you talk about types. That's, that's basically the game they play. Um, now, Aristotle distinguishes also between token and type substances in the categories. So humanity or human being, that's a, that's a type of substance. I and, 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 and you are individual, are token substances, right? So uh, it's important to keep that in mind. So here are some examples of token substances. Socrates, Eucephalus, you know, Alexander's horse, a particular drop of water, a chunk of granite, the sun. Right? Those are all token substances in my view. Types of substances, human being, horse, water, granite, and so on. Right? And unfortunately, we get confused often when we talk about this. So you know, is water a substance? Well, what are you talking about? Right? Uh, I would probably want to say, yeah, it's a substance type. Right? A particular drop of water is a substance token. Right? Maybe the oceans of the world are a single substance token. I'm not sure. But in any case, um, there, are, there are tokens and there are types. OK. Uh, similarly, there are natural and artificial substances. So not all substances are, are natural. We can create substances in various ways. Uh, and likewise, there are tokens and types as well. So there are artificial substance types, like wine and styrofoam and plutonium. These are things that don't exist except through human agency, right? Um, and of course, there are particular tokens of that, like nuclear reactor cores made of plutonium, or false teeth, or ice sculptures, or something like that. Now, some of these, of course, artificial tokens are of natural types, like an ice sculpture is of the natural type of ice, <coughs> right? Whereas a nuclear reactor core is part of the artificial substance plutonium. I just sort of mentioned all this to say it doesn't matter, so forget it. <laughs> but again, uh, uh, what I want to make clear is that Aristotle's notion of substance extends to artificial stuff, too. is isn't really limited to, to the natural world. Um, uh, so we can make natural artificial tokens. OK, uh, chemical substances. Um, so on my view, if you're going to defend, uh, a token chemical substance is a body of matter with thermal, thermal, thermodynamic, and chemical properties. So it's very much, I think, related to what Karen just described as bulk substances, like bulk water. That would be an example of a chemical substance on my picture. Individual atoms and molecules are not chemical substances. I think never, never chemical substances. Um, maybe really large molecules, I'm not sure. But certainly small ones are never so. They're only virtual parts. In fact, they're virtual, um, well, I should, I should qualify that, actually. That's, that's not quite right. So um, they are integral parts, mostly virtual, very occasionally actual. Okay? So particles, atoms, and molecules, they are mostly in this category, but occasionally in that category. So if I have a glass of water, the uh, protons, neutrons, electrons, hydrogen, oxygen, atoms, molecules, they are all mostly virtual integral parts of that watery substance. Right? 
So in other words, they aren't actually there for the most part, right? Now, on the other hand, in certain special cases, you could force one of them to be actual. Um, that happens naturally very rarely. What we do, what scientists do in the laboratory is to force that to happen much more often. So we, we isolate particular molecules or atoms, is what we call it. I say we're actually actualizing those molecules and atoms by, set, by, our, by, our, uh, lab, by our experimental setups, right? So that we think, well, that shows that the molecules are always there. Well, they're always there potentially, right? But they're only there actually when you force them to express themselves in these experimental setups. That's the story, anyway. I'll try to explain, defend it here in a bit. Um, now, you get also, there are also other kinds of virtual integral parts. For instance, um, potential surfaces of a liquid or of a, or of a solid, right? So if I've got a rock, it's got an actual surface, right? But it also has potential surfaces that run through the rock in various places that could be exposed if I broke the rock. But they're not actually there on the nearest fluid picture, right? Only the actual surface is there. The others are really potential. So they may also be virtual in many cases. Actually, they may have some sort of role to play. So, um, so the fact that I'm demoting most atoms and molecules to the status of virtual integral parts does not mean I'm putting Karen out of work, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that anything she's doing is wrong. She's doing exactly the right thing, right? Which is to understand water in terms of the sort of hypothetical interaction of these molecules in various ways. And that would be exactly the right thing because she's capturing, because, because these things are virtual and not merely potential. That is, the, the fact that they're potentially there is doing real explanatory work. And so we should understand the water as if it were actually made of these little molecules when in fact, I'm going to argue it's a continuum. Right? So Aristotle was right about this. Water is continuously watery, right? uh, through and through. We were talking about this earlier. Last, yesterday I said, well, maybe it's mostly hom homogeneous or continuous. But now I think, oh, I'm going to say it's actually always homogeneous. And even when you get the atoms and molecules to sort of express themselves in lab contexts, it still remains the case that the body of water is wholly watery all the way through. It's just that it also has an integral part that's been actualized in a certain place. But it remains watery so all the way through. That remains important uh, in explaining what's going on. Okay, so, um, so organisms also have chemical substances as virtual parts, right? So I sort of mentioned that earlier, right? So I've got water, a particular token substance of water, uh, as one of my virtual parts. Right? There's a kind of watery substance that's a virtual part of me and that explains in various ways, the operations of my, my body. Um, I have calcium as a virtual part and so on, right? Um, okay, so that's that. Okay, so now let me try to defend some of those crazy views. Why, why do I think this stuff, right? And I think it, I think it because of the um, transition between um, early quantum theory and algebraic quantum theory. So in the um, early quantum theory, we had um, finite Hilbert spaces as the basic way of modeling things. So uh, you would have, um, that is, um, you would represent a system as a vector, its properties would be a sort of vector in a particular space that was um, finite um, roughly, that is, it doesn't have to be finite dimensional, but it has to be what's called separable. So it's as if it could be broken down into a finite number of subsystems. And in algebraic quantum theory, what we do is we go to infinite systems. So systems in which you have an infinite number of subsystems, so to speak. So in pioneer early quantum mechanics, the quantum mechanics of the 30s and 40s, you would represent a finite system by a vector space in a high dimensional, even an infinite space. So I'm not saying the space has to be finite. But the point is that the, that the space is separable. So, um, so the separable spaces represent systems with finitely many degrees of freedom. So the number of degrees of freedom is finite. That's the crucial thing in this, in this early kind of system. And, uh, and that corresponds to having finitely many subsystems. So it's as if you were modeling a system that had, let's say, you know, a zillion electrons, okay? Uh, that, would be a, that would be a finite uh, Hilbert space kind of representation. And on this kind of picture, all of the observables, that is, that's physics talk for properties, right? All of the real properties of the thing uh, are, are subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and therefore they enter into superposition kinds of states. That is, uh, a particle, for instance, in this picture, typically doesn't have a definite position. 
it's typically in a superposition of many different positions. And it typically doesn't have a particular velocity, it's a superposition of many different velocities, right, uh, simultaneously. So, um, uh, and, and you can't have a definite position and a definite momentum at the same time. If you get a definite position, you get a very indefinite momentum, definite momentum, very indefinite position, right? So, so that's, that's what complementarity uh, forces on you. Okay, if we go to, so what are the, dif dif the defects of this? There's an important theorem by uh, Stone and von Neumann that shows that any uh, two complete representations in one of these separable uh, Hilbert spaces are what's called unitarily equivalent. So what that means is that in this kind of finite system, you really get, well, you only get one macroscopic state that's possible. You can represent them great deal of difference at the microscopic level, but you can't get any, any interesting difference at the macroscopic level. Uh, and so this, is, this makes them completely useless for chemistry and thermodynamics. You don't get um, what are called super selection sectors. So for instance, you can't get a real difference between solid and liquid on this kind of picture. You can't get a real distinction between different chemical forms of the same atoms, or even different atomic forms of the same particles. Uh, so all the macroscopic stuff is going to fail. You don't get spontaneous symmetry breaking or phase transitions. So all the sorts of things that you really want for chemistry and thermodynamics, you don't get from basic quantum mechanics. And this is not just a matter of calculation. This is sort of in principle. This is what the von Neumann stone thing shows. Just in principle, you can't get the stuff that you want. So how, how then is it possible to do thermodynamics anymore? It's like quantum mechanics is just, just falsified chemistry and thermodynamics. Well, it doesn't, because you can go to infinite algebraic systems instead. And in this case, you have non-separable systems. And now you get inequivalent representations. So now you can actually have um, macroscopic states that are distinct, that represent distinct Hilbert spaces of the same system. I know that's a bit technical, but um, maybe we can talk about that in the discussion. Uh, and these are represented by algebras rather than by simple Hilbert spaces. So there's a mathematical difference here. And only in such systems can you rigorously define the concepts of chemistry and thermodynamics, like entropy, heat, and so on, chemical form. And only in such systems do you get spontaneous symmetry breaking and true irreversibility. At the finite level, everything is reversible. There's no, there's no direction of time or of, or of thermodynamics. So it's problematic. So what do scientists actually do? What they do is they take the continuum limit, right? So in other words, you model the system uh, using quantum mechanics, and then you suppose, then you start increasing the number of particles. And there are various ways to do this, but basically you can, you can keep the volume fixed and make the, increase the number of molecules or particles, but make them smaller and smaller, so the density is the same. And you keep doing that right out to infinity, right? The point which you've now got an infinite number of infinitely small or infinitesimal molecules in the same sort of volume and with the same sort of density. Once you get to that continuum limit, you get to these infinite algebraic systems, and you get all these wonderful properties that enable you to do chemistry and thermodynamics, okay? So this is, this is a, a, an amazing sort of thing. Um, now, why do we, what's the, what's the ontological metaphysical significance of the fact that this is how we do quantum chemistry? Well, Hans Primus pointed out there are three reasons for taking infinite limits in physics. One reason is just mathematically convenient. The second reason is it helps us to isolate some factor from others. And the third reason is to introduce new structure into the representation that wasn't there in the finite case. If you do it for reasons one and two, that has no ontological significance, right? It's just saying it's useful for us to understand things or it has, practical, it has convenience for us. If you do it for reason three, I think that has real ontological significance, right? That is, you're going to the infinite limit not because it's more convenient, but because you get new structure there that isn't present in the finite cases. And again, von Neumann Stone proves it's not present in any of the finite cases. So to get the stuff we want for chemistry and thermodynamics, we have to go to the infinite limit, right? And so I take it that, I take that then as a marker for a real metaphysical difference. Something really interesting is going on here uh, that the uh, infinite limit is, is pointing us to. Okay, so one of the things, for instance, is spontaneous symmetry breaking. So in, in pioneer quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics which is finite in many systems, there's no symmetry breaking. So you, you, you balance a pen, pencil on its tip and it falls down in one direction rather than another. Uh, that's breaking the symmetry of the original situation. 
In, quant in simple quantum mechanics, the pencil falls in every direction simultaneously, right? And so there's no, there's no breaking of the symmetry. Symmetry is always preserved. Um, and yet we see, we see spontaneous symmetry breaking in nature all the time. And that's what, that's what sort of forces us to the infinite level. So for instance, um, phase transitions is another example here. So we talked about this earlier, solid, liquid, gas. Um, there's, there's real macroscopic differences here. Uh, we need inequivalent representations to make sense of these different phases, and that requires the infinite models. That requires the continuum limit. If we stick to the finite limit, there's no inequivalent representations. All these distinctions just blur together into a single, into a single uh, discontinuous uh, uh, picture. And that's just false to the, to the phenomenological or experimental facts that we see in the world around us, sort of obvious facts. Um, I'll mention here just in passing, that in my view, it's pretty clear, actually, that melting and, and solidifying, uh, melting and um, freezing uh, and boiling and so on represents substantial change, right? That is, you have a new substance when you freeze water because the internal structure is different. You've moved from one sector to another, one inequivalent representation to another. That's a real substantial change, just as much as any chemical reaction would be, in my view. But we can talk about that during the discussion later. Um, so, um, so Bohr, contend that the quantum theory does not exhaust reality. The reality consists of two domains, quantum and classical. And, um, and the reason for that is the quantum realm doesn't make sense on its own. And I think he's right about that. So the quantum realm tells you, you know, there's this, there's this vector that's evolving in some abstract space, right? But what does that mean? Well, the vector gives you probabilities of getting various results. But there's, there are no results in the quantum realm itself, right? There's, there, you never get a definite answer. So for Bohr, um, you know, you, what you really have to have is, is a, a distinct classical realm in which you do things and you interact with the quantum realm and the quantum realm produces results in the classical realm. Now the difficulty for Bohr is that it turns out the world doesn't divide neatly into classical things and quantum things. You get things like supercooled fl fluids, you have quantum computers, you get lots of phenomena that seems to be both macroscopic and, and quantum all at the same time. But what you do get with algebraic quantum mechanics is a very sharp distinction between classical and quantum properties. Not different things, but different properties. So the property of being solid or liquid, for instance, or of being water and, or being a bunch of uh, hydrogen, oxygen ions or something like that, those are classical properties. Those are not going to enter in this picture into uh, quantum superpositions, um, at least not uh, typically. Um, so, um, so these systems have a, a classical center of mutually commuting properties that are, that are immune to the uh, complementarity principle, uncertainty principle. So they don't, they, this, is, this is the solution of the measurement problem and the Schrodinger cat and all that, and we'll be talking about that in a bit. Um, so, um, so in particular, we have the problem of the persistence of, of chemical form, right? So, um, yeah. So for instance, um, the crucial thing here is that, for instance, in molecules, uh, you get, um, in many cases, you get a distinction between right and left-handed versions of the same, uh, arrangement or the same number of, of atoms, and this is called chirality in, 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 in chemistry. Uh, and these things can be right, quite stable. So you can, you can have a right-handed molecule that just sort of sits there for thousands of years, right? Uh, we have some evidence for, for the stability of these things in many cases. Um, the difficulty, again, is that in classical quantum mechanics, finitary sort of quantum mechanics, um, you don't get the, the um, symmetry breaking, the spontaneous symmetry breaking you need to go one way or the other. And you don't get the stability of the molecule as well. The molecule is constantly going to be kind of going to be spreading out in space, so to speak, as time passes and lose the asymmetry that, that produces, that corresponds to the chirality. So the question is, what, what is it that keeps the molecule right-handed, right, in a, in a persistent sort of way? And the answer to that, I think, is form. That is, it's Aristotelian chemical form is the thing that's responsible for this. Now, what a number of physicists will say, and chemists will say, is that it's actually, um, yeah, so this is the thing I just mentioned. The Schrodinger equation is, is spherically symmetrical. So there's no explanation really for the persistence of chemical structure. And I'm arguing it's, it's identical to the Aristotelian form. So chemical form actually contributes exactly the 
three functions we mentioned earlier that Aristotelian form functions. So, so we can see how Aristotle's notion of substantial form fits exactly to what's needed here to make sense of chemistry. It grounds the classification of a chemical substance by natural kinds in terms of its chemical substitution, so a chemical composition. So it's the form that makes water watery and so on, right? It grounds the persistence of a chemical substance as the same substance over time. So again, it would sort of ground the chirality of, of a substance that, that consists entirely of right-handed molecules, let's say. And it grounds the, the substance's active and passive powers and its interactions with other substances. So it does all those things. Now, of course, as we saw last time, uh, we know now that form and the relationship between the form of a, of a compound, like water, and the form of its parts is more complicated than Aristotle or Aquinas thought. Right? They thought that you could just look at ratios of the, uh, of the um, uh, virtual substantial uh, components. And now we know that it's much more complicated than that, right? That the elemental substances combine in such a way that they have, that they have chemical structure, right? And that chemical structure contributes to the uh, behavior of the whole substance. And so again, that's why this sort of thing that, that chemists do, where they sort of pretend that the, that the substance consists entirely, actually, of little molecules with a, with a certain persistent structure, is exactly right, the right thing to do. Because that's, that's the way in which the chemical form acts, right? It acts in such a way as to preserve the, um, the features of a certain kind of structure, right? So, um, so that's, that's actually the correct thing to do. And um, as I said, the, the algebraic approach here is going to give us the persistence of chemical form. Now, um, one can also talk about the interaction between the molecule and its environment. And so some physicists and chemists think that that's a way to get away from anything like Aristotle's form or any other kind of mystery here. So they would say that what, what explains the persistence of chemical form of a particular molecule, let's say, is the way that it's interacting with its environment. So interaction with the environment is sort of collapsing the wave function, right, in such a way that it keeps the uh, molecule in a kind of stable sort of position. But Primus and others have shown that it's only interaction with a non-quantal or partly classical environment that can do that. If you just sort of stick this quantum system in a larger quantum system, you get nothing. You have to interact with something that already has a kind of classical features to it. And so in the end of the day, that's not avoiding the need for Aristotelian form. You still need it in the picture in order to get the kind of um, environmental interaction that you want. And we can talk a little bit about decoherence. Again, a lot of physicists think of decoherence is the answer to all this. But decoherence also presupposes that you've got things like solid bodies in the world that you can be interacting with. And that's exactly the problem, right, for the non-Aristotelians to explain how you get that kind of stuff in a quantum world where initially everything's completely symmetrical and there's no, and there are no distinctions between different uh, phases of matter. There's no distinction between solid and liquid on that picture. And that's going to be a, a huge problem. Okay, um, so um, the idea here is that the continuum limit is, is not an idealization in the sense that it's merely something for convenience. It's representing something real. And so Aristotle was actually on the right track when he thought that these, these inorganic substances were continuous or homogeneous. They really are, right? But they have virtual integral parts, always, that have, that do, involve a kind of structure, right, which expresses itself in that substance through the chemical form. And so to understand what the chemical form is doing and how it's doing it, we have to build models of exactly the kind of current described in order to, in order to uh, make the right sort of predictions. So scientifically, it's absolutely right, but hopefully the Aristotelian picture is providing us with a, an illuminating uh, background story, right, that helps us to uh, see what we're doing, understand what we're doing, and hopefully to understand nature as well, a little better. I'll stop there and uh, some questions. questions after that, so we'll begin here and then we have a lot more time for discussion after lunch with, 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 with both Dr. Coons and Dr. Oberlin. So uh, let's start with Parker. Yeah. Yeah. Whether now that um, we are making individual organs and like petri dishes, whether that would fit into that chart or whether 
Yeah, okay, that's good. So, um, so right, so heart and hand, I described as an integral part of a human body. And the, the simple definition I gave for that is that it can't exist except as part of the whole. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, hearts can exist except, you know, apart from the organism of which they're a part. I mean, before we get even to growing our own hearts in the Petri dish, we can talk about heart transplants and things like that. And yeah, so, um, so you're right, I have, to, I have to backtrack a little bit. Um, I think that the key idea here is that an integral, an, anything that's an integral part is sort of essentially partish, right? <laughs> that is, being a part is, is a part of its very essence. And so you can't make sense of a heart. You can't, they couldn't, there just couldn't exist a heart which wasn't in some sense the heart of some organism, right? So on my view is, you know, if I'm dying or, or brain dead and you take out my heart, um, it's still my heart, actually. It's still part of my body. Uh, we put it in someone else. Eventually, maybe it becomes his heart, but at every point in time, it's somebody's heart, right, I think. Uh, and it wouldn't really make sense to talk about it as a heart otherwise. Now, the, tough, the case you bring up is actually even tougher, right? Because now we just grow a heart uh, in, in a Petri dish. So what do I want to say about that? Um, I'm not sure what to say about that. I mean, part of me wants to say, okay, that's not really a heart, right? It maybe functions as a heart, but it's not really a heart because a heart has to develop in a living vertebrate in a certain way. Um, on the other hand, I mean, you, I, I could imagine we put it in somebody's body and, it's, and it, gets, it gets sort of absorbed by the body, it's sustained by the body in certain ways. Yeah, eventually it becomes a heart, I think. It becomes that person's heart. So it, for it to really to exist as a substance, or not as a substance, but as anything at all other than just a heap of, 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 uh, of inorganic substances, it has to be or become part of a larger organism. And that's sort of essential to it. That's the, that's the picture. So it, kind of, it has to be functioning and performing the function. Otherwise, it's more of a representation. It might as well be a function. Yeah, it has to be, um, or at least, you know, in a position to perform the function or something like that, right? Yeah, that seems okay, yeah. Um, the, the point, I think the point again is that it's not the sort of thing that could be a substance, right? It, it, because it just isn't, it doesn't have a nature that's self-contained, right, or something like that. Its nature is to play a role in some larger system. And so uh, it just doesn't make any sense to say, oh, here's just a heart, whose heart is it? Nobody's, it's an actual heart. I don't think it makes any sense, right? It's an actual heart-shaped thing, but it's not a heart, right, in that kind of picture. So maybe um, if we could, let's, let's focus on, maybe before getting into like all the biological things, let's focus on a question specifically about the talk and in particular sort of the, the chemical order of things before we jump into heart transplants and things like that. So, yeah. so one of the articles um, about these substances that I, I thought immediately of like a, an energy eigenstate or a clock state. So like, what about a quantum state? Was there a risk so, right, so, so whole substances on my picture do have quantum states, right? So they're going to have, they're going to have properties that are both um, classical and quantal, right, uh, typically. Um, so um, so you, you, can, you, can represent, you can represent the whole system as a you know, vector in some particular Hilbert space. Right, as a representation of the macroscopic features of the of the substance, so uh, so but, but I mean states aren't substances of any kind, right? I mean a substance is is a is a kind of thing, right? That persists through time, through change. States can't do that, right? Once you change the state, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't it doesn't self have further properties. It's just except mathematical ones. It just it, it's the property of something. I would think. So a, a quantum state is some kind of representation, I would say, of either an essence or an accident of something. That's, that's how I fit it in the picture. I'm going to interject a question. Yeah. So you, you said something about, you know, you're talking about this, you know, if you're isolating an individual atom, and so you mean kind of like the, the hardest case of that in a certain sense, you're thinking about like a cosmic ray, so you have, you know, 
like an individual uh, alpha particle or or, or yeah. photon kind of zooming through zooming through seemingly empty space. Yeah. Where how how do you conceive of that fitting into this picture? Yeah. So it's a good question. So uh, my view is that, that that cosmic ray is going to be one of these virtual, initially virtual integral parts of some much larger substance. I mean, it may be that the whole universe was a single substance from the beginning, from the Big Bang. And if the cosmic ray is, is I, mean, I don't know the details about where cosmic rays come into the picture. I guess they're somewhat later than that, right? Yeah. What's that? Supernovae. Okay. okay, so in that case, the cosmic ray would be part of some, uh, some, some star, basically. And uh, even if the dark star no longer exists as a star, it would exist in the form of a spreading set of photons and, and other particles, right? And then when, 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 that's, when that photon or, or that alpha particle interacts with some substance here on Earth, it becomes actual, becomes an actual integral part of that thing. And then, of course, it's destroyed, and then nothing else happens. But yeah. So you may have kind of another reason why I don't like the word emergence, because it sort of suggests that the atoms and particles came first and they combine to make more complicated things. Um, so my conjecture, anyway, is that, the, that, that, that very, very big substances come first. Right? So we have like a monism that breaks down. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So in other words, metaphysically speaking, we've got a kind of cosmic monism at the very beginning. They're just one gigantic substance, consisting entirely of photons and quarks and so on. And then it starts breaking down into smaller bits. But you never get substances that are atom-sized. Those are always integral parts of some larger substance. That's the thing, uh, Sister. Um, maybe I'm not understanding this right, or maybe this is just a different way of looking at it. Um, in the case where you have, I'm thinking, how does this um, illustrate what you're saying about substances acting where the, the molecules act together? If you have a case where you have a molecule that like um, uh, a substrate for an enzyme, and the, that one individual molecule of a certain shape, certain points where hydrogen binding can act, and it binds singly in the, the enzyme, and you have from that something that happens because of the, the enzyme reacting and breaking it down. Does that also fit, fit into this idea? Yeah, I mean, we're pressing on a, on a point that I'm, I'm even less secure on in most, most cases. So it may be, and here, here I think that's something like an empirical question, it may be that, that really, certain really large molecules do count as substances. So certain enzymes and DNA molecules are perhaps large enough that they start having these, these thermal properties. There's, they can be um, correctly modeled at the continuum limit. So it's all of these cells. I guess I'm thinking um, of the terms of the substrate that's being bound. Right, that's much smaller. Right. So in that case, in that case, I think you've got some kind of solution, right, which uh, inside the cell, which is the chemical substance, and then the enzyme is acting on that substance in such a way as to actualize the particular atom. So it, it goes from being really virtual integral part of the solution to becoming actual momentarily and then goes back into a virtual state, but in a, such a way that the solution's now changed somewhat as a result of the interaction. So something like that, I think, might be happening. Um, I mean, it could also be the case that the enzyme itself is actually part of some larger thermal substance. So you've actually got two different substances that are interacting in such a way that, at that point, you get an actual enzyme and actual substrates um, reacting in a certain way, and then back to the continuum kind of condition after that. 
so I have like a two-part question, more like just a specific in general. So in general, is the size of something important uh, for whether or not it is or can be a substance? And then as a particular, uh, so I don't really, I'm not a biologist, but there have been talk of the bacteria in our guts and things like that. Are those, is like the, you know, biome of the amoeba or whatever that live like in my stomach, are they separate from like my substance? Are they part of me or are they a separate substance that lives in me? Well, I think that the bacteria are clearly organisms in my picture and so they're, they're distinct substances. Um, you know, let's not talk about viruses. That violates the problem <laughs> about, uh, about the tough cases. Um, so yeah, no, and then, yeah, question about that. So that, again, that's that's point in which I have to admit I'm I'm uh, hand wavy at this point. So uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that really, really small things can't be substances here, right? Because um, I mean, I, I just don't see any way that you could use um, you know, a model that's taken to the continuum limit to explain the behavior of a single hydrogen atom, let's say, or even a single hydrogen water molecule. Uh, you, need, uh, you need enough of them that you see the kinds of thermodynamic and chemical properties that we want. So things like surface tension that, that Karen mentioned, and uh, you know, heat, and entropy, and all that kind of stuff, which on this picture um, you know, only can be found at a sufficiently large scale. And uh, where exactly that is, is I think an empirical question, right? That is, we'll find out where do our models work, where do they break down, that will give us some sort of idea of the, that boundary, I hope. So I wanted to ask about how sharp that boundary would be, regardless of where it is. Does it follow from what you say that that boundary has to be infinitesimally sharp, meaning that you could have a collection of molecules that is not a substance, and then you add one molecule that becomes a substance, or is it not quite that sharp? Yeah, so, I mean, of course, I wouldn't want to think of it in that kind of temporal way, but if you think of that just as a thought experiment, my guess is, yeah, it has to be exactly sharp. Um, now, um, you know, it might depend on all kinds of factors. So it might depend upon the context in which the mo molecules exist, the way in which they're related to each other. So it might not just be a simple matter of N H2O molecules, not a substance, N plus one is a substance. It might be slightly more complicated than that, but fixing all those like environmental and other kinds of factors, I think it's gonna have to be sharp boundary on the Aristotelian picture because there's no such thing as sort of being 0.9 a substance, right? It's gonna either be a substance or it isn't. There's no, I don't think there's any room for vagueness there myself. Others might disagree. I mean, you could potentially, I guess, be, Still counts in Aristotelian and think that there are vague cases of substance, but it would be, it would be odd. In principle, then, could someone design an experiment to test whether your picture is a deterministic, or sorry, the emergence picture is right? Yeah, I think so. Um, that is, I think we, what we could do is we would find out that um, these kind, that the use of continuum limit pictures just breaks down at certain points, right, and doesn't break down at a higher level. So that's my thought, anyway. Um, thank you. Uh, so you mentioned earlier something about uh, individual molecules or atoms are never substances. But it seems like then you kind of backtrack a little bit on that. Like any big molecules or anything like that. But then even um, um, maybe there's cases that seem like you're saying where you could individually isolate water. This is right. Like an individual water molecule. That would be a substance. But I guess why is this the case, right? Is it just that this never actually can occur in nature, right? Uh, um, I guess why, why theoretically, right, is this principle impossible? You can never have an individual water molecule on its own, right, that wouldn't be a substance. Um, but I guess now the other follow-up to that is for, um, your objections here to, to quantum particles, I'm wondering if it's more like sort of epistemological consideration. You just can't really know given Okay. Right. Okay. Let me let me try to explain that. So so yes, of course you can isolate individual molecules or atoms. That's certainly true. 
that's because they can become actual integral parts of a watery substance or something else. Right? So you can, you can force the watery substance to express its molecular character in a particular place in time. Right? And then we say, okay, there's the molecule, or there's the atom, right? we've isolated it. Uh, but immediately after having isolated it, it goes back into the continuum. And, you know, so there's nothing, there's nothing sort of persisting there that you've identified. You've just, you just force the, the substance to express itself in that kind of definite way. Um, and this happens in nature too, apart from human beings, just by the interaction between substances. They, they do isolate these, these parts or actualize these integral parts in various ways. Now why, why am I confident that individual water molecules can't be substances? Because it would make no sense to ask, what's the entropy of this molecule? What's the temperature of this molecule? And so on. And you couldn't really make sense, I think, even of, um, of a, let's say, a chiral molecule, right? What's the chirality of this molecule in isolation? just doesn't have a chirality except as in, in, in some kind of larger context in, in quantum mechanics. So you so, mentioned these properties of this part, and why, why should these properties be the ones, I guess, that essentially make it distinctive for a substance? Maybe there are but it's so minimal you can't measure it, or there's maybe other sorts of properties that we should perhaps um, attribute to it, like the early state. Well, it connects, it connects to my view that, um, that um, when you go to these infinite algebraic systems, which give us this ther these thermodynamic properties, you escape the complementary principle, principle to some extent. You start seeing classical properties emerge, so to speak. And so now, even though none of the integral parts really have definite position, the whole thing does have a definite position and shape and so on. And that's, that's because of the, uh, um, the, the center, the, the uh, non-quantal nature of some of the properties that you get at that level. Um, the other question that you asked, see, was about, um, oh yeah, is it a matter just of ignorance? And the answer, well, it depends on your interpretation of quantum mechanics, right? So if you adopt a particular interpretation called Bohmian mechanics, then yes, it's all a matter of, of ignorance. And so I'm, I'm, all I'm doing is more or less presupposing, at least for this purpose, is that Bohmian mechanics is just wrong. And, uh, and very few physicists like it. It's popular among some philosophers, but uh, it, it, uh, it, it, makes it makes particles act in really, really weird ways, basically, to put it simply, uh, in order to get the results that, that you want. So on, on, on all the other interpretations of quantum mechanics, it's not just a matter of our ignorance about where the electron is. It just isn't anywhere definite most of the time. Right? It's, it's, it's spread out over the whole cosmos, at least to some extent. And, uh, and that, I think, is, that's one of the, dis I think that disqualifies it as a substance. Just philosophically, that just sounds really strange. It's not all I'm going to say. Which is why this is not a substance. Uh, okay, uh, one we time for like, maybe two more questions. Brian? All right, I'll ask the, pause the bigger one. Um, I just want to ask what is form. So, the, you said what, I was actually fortuitous, you went to this, you said what form is not, you want to differentiate form from structure, you also yeah. give a, a functional kind of form of the job it needs to perform, that it needs to be the thing that's responsible for making a substance a substance. Yeah. So it needs to be responsible for the unity and simplicity yeah. of it. So that's how, sort of the, the you know the form, you know the form is in the structure, you know what the job description of the form is, in a vague way. Yeah. What is a form? Like that, so what fulfills that, that function? Of all, of all the explanations has now become. I mean, you have to, at some point, you just have to reach rock bottom, right? Forms are forms. You know? I, can't, I, can't, I can't define form in some other terms, right? Um, uh, it's, it's one of the primitive concepts of, the, of, 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 of correct metaphysics. Aristotle disagrees. Aristotle does not stop with forms as primitives. So what, what, how do you think? What did he? What is he? What is he thinking for? Explaining in terms of dunamis and energia, that you need, that you that you have further primitives by which you explain form and matter and the relationship to each other. You have different ways of clarifying form by seeing forms manifest in different sorts of substances. I mean, so because if you posit form, like a lot of people hate form. You can define particular forms, right? So I can explain what a human form is by by relating it to some taxonomy. But I don't really explain what form is there. I'm presupposing so, what I'm presupposing that we know it or that you know. So the, so the end level of all explanations of like why is what so for the previous talk, why is what it do what it does has to ultimately be to say because it has the form of water. Yeah, that's gonna be uh, and then there's there's more that you can say about the form. 
But, um, but yeah, you're not going to be able to, if I give that explanation and you say, okay, fine, but what is form in the first place? I'm not going to be able to answer that. Now, I can say more about this particular form. Again, I can fit it into a taxonomic structure and say this form is the form of a certain species which fits into a genera, you know, in a, a kind of porphyry tree in a certain way. And so it actualizes certain potentialities of more generic forms. So I can talk about that. But that still presupposes the intelligibility of form itself. I'm not, I'm not going to define any form away in that, in that picture. I don't think there's any way to do that in Aristotle's structure. Right. One more question. Great for lunch and lots more questions. <laughs> uh, um, you spoke about quantum particles as having no definite number. Given like, your changing frame of reference, no definite boundary, and, um, and no definite identity. Whereas we find all three of these in substance. So I'm wondering, if quantum particles combine from molecules, molecules combine from substances, where does where does this definiteness come from? Is it like an, is it like a virtual part in quantum particles that then becomes manifest once they get to a certain threshold? Where does the definiteness identity come from? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly what the form does. So is is form in the quantum particles virtually that then becomes manifest? No, so, so the, the substance, right, has a form, right? That form is what um, uh, unifies the, um, the virtual particles, right, that make, make up in some sense the substance. So that um, it doesn't really give individual particles, um, uh, they still don't get definite locations and so on, right, except insofar as they are parts of the whole substance. So the substance has, has its location. And you, in the laboratory, right, what you do in the laboratory is you're always making two substances or more interact with each other in certain ways. You don't grab hold of a quantum particle, right, and then bring it into the laboratory and do something to it. You have to, you have to bring into it larger scale chemical and material things and put them together and, and uh, make them interact in certain ways. And then when they interact and we see, oh, there's an electron, right? That's what we've done is we've taken these, these substances <coughs> and we've made the virtual integral parts of that substance express themselves as an actual integral part. So, uh, so that's, that's, and that, that power to do so is, is possessed by the substance as a whole. Uh, so the, the particles have no independent existence. They really exist only as aspects of the whole substance that can be expressed in certain ways in, in these interactions. That's the picture we have to get in our heads, right? If we, if we stick with the kind of, you know, Newton Boyle, Maxwell picture of the world, where it's just, there are these little discrete things, right? And then they get organized in space in certain ways, and then you have substances, and wow, how does that happen? What's going on? That's, that's starting from the, that's picking up a stick on the wrong end, right? I want to say that's not the way to think about it. Start with the large-scale substances, right? And then ask yourself, What's this quantum stuff? Right? How does that fit into uh, to the world? Let's uh, thank Dr. Peter.